This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. The Netflix series Ginny and Georgia is about a young single mom, her teenage daughter, and their efforts to create a life for themselves after the death of the mom's wealthy husband. It's got high school standbys like new friendships and first sexual experiences, but it's also got adult soap standbys like secret pasts and shady figures who may or may not be there to do harm. To say it has a lot going on is a wild understatement. The series recently returned for a second season, so we thought now would be a good time to revisit our conversation about the first season. I'm Linda Holmes, and in this encore episode of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we're talking about Ginny and Georgia. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Welcome back. Joining us from her home in Brooklyn is Daisy Rosario. She's an executive producer at Stitcher with the show Celebrity Book Club with Chelsea Devantes. It's in its first season right now. Hello, Daisy. Welcome back. Hey, Linda. Thanks for having me. Of course. And joining us for the very first time, we are delighted to have writer and editor Ella Cerrone. Welcome to the show, Ella. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Absolutely. We are delighted. So Ginny and Georgia, it's 10 episodes. It's from creator Sarah Lampert. It was compared to Gilmore Girls a lot when they started to promote it because of the uh, young mom of the teenage daughter idea. Brianne Howie plays the mom, Georgia. Antonia Gentry plays Ginny, the daughter. There's also a little brother whose name is Austin. He's basically the little brother. At any rate, Georgia is white, but Ginny's dad is black. So one thing the show spends some time with is Ginny's biracial identity. It also takes her through relationships with a couple of different boys, including both the bad boy next door who climbs in through the window and the nice popular boy at school who gets along with people's parents. Ginny also makes a bunch of new friends at the new school where she starts after the rich husband of her mom dies. Georgia, meanwhile, to shift gears completely has some trauma in her past that the show posits is part of the reason she's resourceful, shall we say, to the point of being manipulative. She gets a job working for a cute mayoral candidate played by Scott Porter. You may know him as Jason Street on Friday Night Lights. And before long, her upbeat future is being threatened by secrets from her past. If this sounds like multiple shows mushed together into one show, then you are absolutely understanding the basics of Ginny and Georgia. Daisy, I want to ask you... How did you react to this? Oh, man. I mean, I have to admit, like, if it wasn't that I knew I was going to come on Pop Culture Happy Hour to talk about it, I don't think I would have made it all the way through the first episode. Mm-hmm. But I kept going. And then I don't know that it got better as much <laughs> as I got more comfortable <laughs> with the weirdness of all of it. Mm-hmm. And I did really grow to like some of the surrounding characters more and found myself rooting for them. And I think once I had people that I was rooting for, then I found that kind of up and down ride of it and that constant 
swap between tones to be a lot more tolerable. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm one of those people who does feel like the worst thing that you can be is boring. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not boring, but I didn't feel confident that it knew what it was going for until it kind of just let itself be what it seemed like it wanted to be. Mm-hmm. But that's that's how it felt. Did you have a preference as between the high school stuff and this sort of scandalous mom stuff? Yes, I did. I mean, at least at the start, they just felt so wildly disconnected, especially tonally. Just felt like I was switching through two different shows all the time. Um, And I'm somebody, just to go back to the Gilmore Girls reference, because it was very clear that that was also part of the marketing. Mm -hmm. So I have had the pleasure of talking to you before about how much I love Gilmore Girls and related to it because I grew up like the only child of a young single mom who was also very pretty. I don't think you can leave that part out of that equation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But going into this, like their dynamic was weird. I definitely was into Ginny's storyline and was kind of like, what is this late night soap that I'm wandering into with Georgia? And then I felt like some of the tone at least started, they, they started maybe understanding a little bit how to incorporate more of that into each side. But I don't think that that's necessarily a line that they like really learned how to walk. I just right. was like, okay, I- I'm with you now. Yeah. Ella, a lot of show. Yeah. Just so much show. <laughs> and I think this is also something that I've, I don't know if frustrated is really the right word for this, but have definitely experienced with a lot of Netflix programming is that so many of their Netflix originals are just so much show. And with Netflix, just given that the platform, you know, just goes on to the next episode, you want to binge it. And at some point you get fatigued from a 10 plus hour experience as (laughs) this could be. There's an argument to be made that there is something for everybody. There is definitely characters that somebody will get invested in, but because there's something for everybody, I didn't know who the show was for. A line that I kept on thinking about was actually maybe the one good thing Mark Brandanowitz gave us in Parks and Rec is the definition of a camel. (laughs) Um, You know, a horse designed by committee. And that's what a lot of this felt like. It felt very much like a committee kind of show. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I just didn't really feel like I understood where we were, what it was trying to do at certain points. Yeah, you know, I reviewed this show for NPR, so I've sort of been heard about this a little bit. But, you know, my my explanation of that was that it was like looking at, like, the front of a car welded to the back of a boat, but, like, <laughs> confidently, right? Not incompetently in the sense that, like, they didn't know whether they wanted to make a car or a boat. It was more just like, you know what? I'm going to take half a car and half a boat, and they're going to be a thing. And I think, you know, Netflix, and I am far from the first person to mention this, but Netflix in particular is so driven by what's going to appeal to people based on algorithms. So when you have a show like this, you can not only recommend it to and sell it to the people who were watching Gilmore Girls or have watched Gilmore Girls, but you can also sort of push it to the people who watch the shows that seem like they're precursors to the adult part, which would be like the Shonda Rhimes and high-octane adult soapy stuff. So it does feel to me a little bit like a jumble. I think, you know, Ella, I think you fastened on a comparison that I also liked that they made in the review of this at Vulture, which was that it was the Guy Fieri's trash can nachos of television (laughs) just because it was a whole pile of stuff, which maybe all of it is things you like, but it feels a little overwhelming as all one thing. And there's a time and place for trash can nachos, just as there is a time and a place for Cheesecake Factory's just 
endless menu, which in and of itself is a feat. But at a certain point, maybe I'm saying this just because I'm lactose intolerant, but like at a certain point during the trash can nachos, you're going to get a stomach ache. (laughs) Oh, definitely. Definitely. Daisy, trash can nachos. Yes. I mean, I think you have just helped me stumble onto something, Ella. I don't know that this feels, for me, it didn't feel as much like it was by committee as much as it felt like a bunch of writers got in a room and named all the shows that they had loved that they wanted to reference and then like didn't pair away the ones that didn't make as much sense. So I was just like, okay, so you love Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Allie McBeal and the Gilmore Girls, but you like wish Rory knew that that maybe wasn't the healthiest dynamic. And you loved loved my so-called life, even though maybe you're not ready to write that show. And I think when you try to take on a lot, inevitably, that is also a recipe for making errors mm-hmm. for making sort of unforced errors when you're trying to do so much stuff and you're trying to kind of especially when you're trying to do that super quick pop culture referency Gilmore Girls dialogue you know they got called out by Taylor Swift mm. for a joke about going through men like Taylor Swift she did not appreciate it she told oh, them on yeah. Twitter she did not for me the stuff that has been the most interesting to watch is the unfolding of like clearly they really wanted to show Ginny kind of reckoning with the idea of being biracial, right? They talk about it. She knows kind of one Black girl at school who really only talks to her about being the Black girl she knows at school. And there's a fight she has with her boyfriend who is half Taiwanese. And they sort of both feel in this moment, I think, like the racism that they experience is being kind of ignored by the other person. And to me, it's kind of an agonizing fight because it's teenagers saying the worst thing they can think of. He also winds up saying some, I think, pretty absurd things. Like, you know, a teenager is not going to say, no, we'll have the oppression Olympics. Like, that's not (laughs) realistic. Daisy, what did you think about that stuff? I found the overall handling sloppy in a way that, like, teenagers would be sloppy having that fight. You know, it's like, it's, a lot of people assume that I'm the same makeup as Jenny, right? So knowing that, I would say, like, it's not like I've always had the language to, like, think about it. So, yeah, I probably wouldn't have said oppression Olympics, but, like, the pure anger and the way that they were addressing it and the fact that it's sloppy, like, that kind of made sense to me. But what does bother me more is the character you mentioned and the way that that character feels like she is only there when Ginny needs to acknowledge a thing about race while they clearly have actually been trying to make some of the other characters more three-dimensional. So like that aspect of the execution felt more cheap to me than, you know, the actual scene where they are fighting um, or some of the other conversations that come up. So much of the show also veers so chaotically between being very, very well-informed and then being really just unsure about how to describe things. Um, one of our first interests to the idea that Ginny is informed about some things is when she takes her uh, English teacher to task for only having white men on his syllabus. Another thing that was really notable too is Georgia, the mom, tries to do her best to raise a biracial daughter. You know, she tells her daughter, don't let people touch your hair. There is a really, really cringy scene where that happens. But then in the next episode or so, she dresses up as Scarlett O'Hara for Halloween. And I was just like, what are you doing? Yes. And I think, too, you know, one of the things I thought was interesting about 
the scene where she's fighting with the boyfriend is that what occurred to me when I was watching that scene is like, this is a fight that these kids might have if both of them, as you see in this show, have grown up around a lot of white people and have not necessarily had those conversations with, you know, for Ginny, with her father's family, which is black, she doesn't really have a relationship with them. And, you know, he the boyfriend talks about how he certainly is close with his dad, who is the parent who's Taiwanese, but they both strike me as kids who have grown up, you know, in white communities. And so I, I thought that part of it was interesting. But again, it's 10 hours long, and they're also trying to do multiple, like, old sketchy deaths and old trauma. And one of Ginny's friends who I really like, she has a new girlfriend and is interested in all of that and how that's going to develop. And Ginny has a pattern of self-harm. And there is so much they're trying to get their arms around in this show that everything I think gets a little bit shortchanged in the end. I was particularly frustrated by the fact that they would bring up certain traumas for certain characters to give them backstory and then never really go anywhere with it. There was one friend, Abby, who I couldn't tell if it was an eating disorder or um, body dysmorphia or a a Venn diagram of the two. Obviously, those two overlap. Right. And then they drop it for her parents' divorce. And then I was really concerned of saying, are you saying that her eating disorder is born of her parents' divorce? Because... Experts would tell you that's not the neatest way to frame it. Right. But if this show is not trying to be an after-school special, then I was wondering what obligation do they serve there? But we know that Netflix has gotten in trouble with being kind of glib about these topics in the past. But at the same time, you know, Jenny never really gets help for her own self-harm issues. And things just kind of get dropped in a way that I felt for them. I wanted these kids to get the help that they were clearly crying out for. And I think with Georgia too, you know, Georgia can be a, a very, to me, a very flat character, a very comically kind of bouncy, silly, kind of sassy Southern belle. That's the character at the beginning. And I think that the substitute for kind of rounding out that character more is that they talk a lot about trauma that she's experienced. And as you can tell, if you're listening to this, This is what we mean when we say there's a lot going on here because there's also, you know, teenage boyfriends and first sexual experience that I actually thought they handled relatively intelligently, that that Ginny is interested in sex and doesn't really know how she feels about who she wants to be having sex with and how and all of that. But boy, there's, gosh, there's a lot. One of the things that really confused me as to who this show is for was a very early on reference uh, to one of the potential love interests as being a Sean Hunter lookalike or uh, that kind of archetype. And I was like, wait a second, did the kids know who Sean Hunter is? Yeah. And that's when I realized that I am technically older than Georgia and had an entire meltdown on that level alone. (laughs) But having that Boy Meets World reference then clued me into, is this show for people of, you know, the mid to late millennial demographic who are still leaning towards this YA stuff because YA is a great escape for people of all ages. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a very <laughs> different than creating YA for young people that maybe that line just doesn't exist anymore and mm-hmm. you have to make it more sophisticated for the young people and still nostalgic enough for the older people. Yeah. It's it's a very interesting equation of how you get that right. And I'm not sure if the show found the perfect balance at all times. The more we talk about it, the more I'm just reminded of the Stefan character on SNL. And it's like, this show has 
everything. Two characters pointing <laughs> guns at each other, followed by a tap dance number. You know, it's like, what? Like, it's just, it's all over the place. It's amazing to get to the end and be like, I forgot all about the guns and right. the tap dance. <laughs> but I did. Yeah. But I did. So if you do get a chance to watch Ginny and Georgia all the way through, part of the way through, with a sense of its chaos in your head, perhaps... We do want to know what you think. Find us at Facebook.com slash PCHH and on Twitter at PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Thank you so much to both of you for being here. This is really, really fun. This was fun. Thank you, Linda. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. This episode was produced by Candice Lim and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Stream stories from around the world, from sinister suspense to charming comedies and clever crime dramas like My Life is Murder, starring Lucy Lawless. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. On this week's episode of Wild Card, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation.